Hi, this is Alan Coates, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, Eljon Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time checking out the show, welcome. Every week we talk all things Disney and pop culture, but never before heard stories behind the scenes moments from some of your favorite disney films theme park attractions performances books music and much more i'm one of your co-hosts al john go musician longtime disney marvel and star wars pop culture fan and you can contact me al john a-l-j-o-n at skullrockpodcast.com dave once again is on location but we are joined by virtual dave I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and pop culturist. Did I say that right? I don't know. It sounded right. Welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, including iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, Anchor FM, Amazon Music, and Audible. And you can like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com got another hot show for you today producer don han is back week number two with don as we all celebrate the 25th anniversary of the hunchback of notre dame before we get to don who's waiting in the green room we have a few pop culture notes to talk about and this awesome listener voicemail hi you know who you call leave a message maybe they'll call you back then again maybe they won't that's how life is. Point is, you've done what you can. <laughs> Have a nice day. Hi, this is Michelle in Pasadena, California, and I'm listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, this week in Disney and pop culture. All right, gang. Got some headline news for you and some comments from Virtual Dave, too. In box office news, Shang-Chi smashes labor day record with a reported 83 million plus the marvel studios film starring simu liu is the second biggest domestic opening of the year behind black widow so marvel dominating the box office and this is according to the hollywood reporter the shang chi and legend of the ten rings is making a heroic showing at the box office where it smashed the record for Labor Day openings and will become the second biggest debut of the pandemic so far behind fellow Marvel Studios pick Black Widow. Shang-Chi from filmmaker Destin Daniel Creighton grossed $23.2 million on Saturday, bringing in its estimated domestic three-day total to $71.4 million at 4,300 locations. Holy smokes, that's incredible. Shang-Chi's global haul is estimated one hundred. $27.6 million. and the PG-13 movie, which earned positive reviews and glowing cinema score stars, Simu Liu as the Marvel's newest hero and its first studio's first ever Asian lead. Shang-Chi is also on track for $83.5 million for the four-day frame, breaking the Labor Day weekend previously held by the 2007 Halloween, which earned 30.6 over the four-day frame. Pretty cool. Hey, I'm going to go see that. 
In Disney Plus news, Disney Plus and Japan expands general entertainment content with the launch of Star on October 27th. Star joins Disney's iconic brands, Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, and Nat Geo, offering 16,000 titles from some of the latest movies to brand new originals and Japanese content. Consumers in Japan can look forward to award-winning titles, including Nomadland, Deadpool, and The Walking Dead. I like that, Al John. We've talked about Star in the past here on the show, and the brand features thousands of hours of general entertainment, including movies and shows produced by Disney, ABC Signature, 20th Century Television, FX Productions, 20th Century Studios, Searchlight Pictures, and more, in addition to the wide range of content genres such as comedies, dramas, and thrillers to fulfill everyone in every mood. The brand will also feature exclusive originals and locally produced content tailor-made for the Japanese market. This week, we also pay tribute to Willard Scott, the wacky weatherman of the Today Show, who passed away at the age of 87. The first Ronald McDonald, he wished happy birthday to 100-year-olds and did anything for a laugh during his 35 years on the morning show had passed away. The good-natured Scott, a favorite son of the Washington area who created and portrayed the original Ronald McDonald, had died on Saturday. Al Roker, who does the weather for the Today Show, said... Quote, we lost a beloved member of our Today Show family this morning. Roker shared on Instagram, Willard Scott had passed away peacefully at the age of 87, surrounded by his family, including his daughter, Sally and Mary, and his lovely wife, Paris. He was truly my second dad, and I am where I am today because of his generous spirit. Willard was a man of his times, the ultimate broadcaster. There will never be anyone quite like him. In 1955, Scott made his TV debut as host of the afternoon show featuring teenage jim henson and the muppets then he played bozo the clown five days a week on another show starring in 1959 as the famous clown he appeared in numerous commercials for the first mcdonald's in the area rest in peace willard scott found a really cool clip of willard remembering his days playing bozo rest in peace Hey, do you recognize this clown i mean weatherman that's right it's channel 4's willard scott I was the only staff announcer that hadn't had either a heart attack or a hernia transplant. I was only 25 at the time. The rest of them were in their 40s, so they picked me to be Bozo. I went to clown school in California, and I was either going to be a politician when I graduated or Bozo. And I chose the straight life. I chose Bozo. (laughs) See, I can still do it. That's the Bozo laugh. Up there, high, high in the dark bell tower, lives the mysterious bell ringer. He lived a solitary life behind stone walls. Hey, Quasi, what's going on out there? A fight? A flogging? The Festival of Fools. All right, all right. Why? Women and some. Outside was a world he only dreamed about. I'd never fit in out there. Until he met Esmeralda. Come with me. You're right. I'll go. Way to go, Die so swell. Join the fun. Sit. Hey, whoa! And live the adventure. I'm back here, Gypsy! What a woman. From Walt Disney Pictures comes an incredible film about one extraordinary human being discovering the magic within himself. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. 
Well, as promised, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back once again uh, with Don Hahn, director, producer, painter, musician, and all around a real true renaissance man. And he's even a great camper because he's been camping in our green room since last week. And uh, he's going to be here for another week because he's coming back next week. So, Don, welcome back to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored and, and surprised to be invited back. And the, the green room is not as bad as you would think, except the fruit platter is uh, just about gone now. So um, aside from that, it's great to see you guys. It's great seeing you. And uh, this week we're going to talk exclusively about the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is uh, considered Disney's 34th animated feature film and it's also looked at as the seventh film produced during what's now known as the disney renaissance of animation uh and this year marks the 25th anniversary where does the time go i know that is truly crazy yeah i mean they say time speeds up as you uh, get older and that's boy is that true have you experienced that that? have you experienced that i have experienced that you know it's it's a it's a real thing because uh, well, it's a long story and I'm not a scientist, but I'll tell you about it. Um, the, the more common experiences you have, like driving to work and eating with your wife and all that stuff, your brain doesn't log that as particularly new and interesting material, although your wife might be new and interesting. But um, it, so time just kind of starts to speed up. If you go on vacation or travel to somewhere exotic, time seems to slow down because everything's new and you're processing all this brand new material. So it has to do with uh, kind of what's new and what's not new. It's really, it's really like your perception. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Okay. So uh, we're going to switch from science to animation and, <laughs> and, and I guess really the, the first question I would bring up to you about the hunchback of Notre Dame uh, is really like, why, where did this come from? Because it is a very dark novel by Victor Hugo and and it's it's really uh, uh, revered in in, in France uh, as uh, you know a seminal piece of literature. Um, who said let's make this an animated film? It'll be fun. Well, uh, like most ideas, it, it kind of starts with a germ of an idea that I think in this case came from a, a guy named David Staten, who was one of the development executives at the time. Um, and he was thinking more in terms of the universal movies, the monster movies, where universal back in the earlier days uh, was making um, creature from the black lagoon and Frankenstein and Quasimodo and all those movies that they categorized as monster movies, even though um, Hunchback of Notre Dame was not necessarily a monster movie or a monster piece of literature. Um, So those comic books and movies that came out about that topic were interesting, Um, but it was intimidating. And I, I think at the time, um, I was just finishing The Lion King and Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale were developing a project with whales, uh, which could have been beautiful. And uh, the studio asked us to look at those uh, at that you know, story and see if there was anything there. So it was intimidating. I think through the process, it was intimidating because it's such a revered piece of literature. It is also something where you don't want to um, dismiss the the handicapped community or, or, uh, you know, people of, uh, of color because it's full of Roma. Um, you know, so it has a lot of pitfalls in it. Uh, and we, we tried to step in every one of them, uh, to be honest. No, we, uh, really tried to be careful in our approach to it. 
got a lot of support from Roy Disney, I have to say. Um, and it was a very transitional time at the studio. Uh, one of our executives, Jeffy Katzenberg, had left. Um, uh, you know, so we were really just kind of looking at new ideas that could be uh, maybe pushing the boundaries of animation a little. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I uh, transitional, I mean, it was also uh, right around that time that uh, Frank Wells was killed in the helicopter crash. So, so I I think that might've been a a year or year or so before. And then Jeffrey left because he didn't get elevated and he set up DreamWorks. And so there was a bit of turmoil going on. Yeah, there was. And I think a lot of times, uh, well, from an audience perspective and a business perspective, I think people quite often would like to say, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, we had great hits with princess movies and, uh, kind of fun stories like Aladdin and things. So just keep doing that so we can make a lot of money and have a good time. And boy, as artists, you want to do the same thing. But then there's the other side of it, which is artists, you also want to stretch yourself and see if you can't challenge yourself to tell different kinds of stories. And that's not just my colleagues and I, that is Walt Disney. And that is, uh, you know, pretty much any writer from Stephen King to, uh, you know, going back to the Bible, people want to stretch and have different stories and different ideas to express their human journey. And so a princess story is fantastic and expresses one kind of human journey. And Hunchback of Notre Dame expressed another kind. And we thought, you know, it's important to reach out and tell those stories. You know, when you guys were starting uh, to develop this, I, I, I take it that um, uh, you you and Kirk and Gary were, were attached to it sort of at the same time while you were finishing Lion King. Is that how it kind of came? No, there's a terrific... No. There's a terrific producer named Roy Conley, who is a big part of this conversation. And Roy came out of the theater. He uh, had had managed various theater companies. He worked at the Pasadena Playhouse, um, really one of my favorite producers out there at animation. Um, and he had started developing it. And, and at the same time that Hunchback was getting going, Feature Animation was splitting their units. Uh, and and uh, let me explain. Um, the animation department was a certain size. And to continue doing a movie every year, we had to grow. And we had to grow and create two units so that uh, the company could continue to turn out one and maybe even two a year at some point. Well, that included a number of things. One was to take on a a group of artists in Paris, which we'll talk about a little bit more. One that Roy really helped in was to recruit just off the streets and find interesting people from which our art director, Dave Getz, who is a brilliant art director who has had now a long career at Disney, um, came from that off the street kind of recruiting. So um, what Roy did and what we tried to do in those early days was put together its own studio. We even set up in another uh, building down the street for a while while it was in development. And uh, the idea there was to, the the crude way of saying it is, let's take the goose that laid the golden egg and split it in two and we'll get two golden eggs. Um, As you can tell, there's some flaws in that argument, but uh, the the idea was right, (laughs) is to say, let's try to multiply and grow. And any business from, you know, Silicon Valley on will want to do that. You have to grow, uh, you know, to be able to let your business grow. So that's where we were. So, uh, so Roy was actually doing the uh, pre-development or the uh, the early development on the project, and and then it got handed off to you after you finished Lion King. Yeah, Roy stayed on the project, thank God, um, and he ended up going to Paris and working with the Paris unit uh, over time, which we were grateful for uh, because he and none of us spoke French, uh, but Roy was more 
willing to speak French and, uh, <laughs> and ride a moped and those kinds of things. Um, and, and he's the most gracious, funny, warm human being. So uh, having him in Paris was a huge asset for us. And then um, as he moved to Paris, I moved in with the, uh, with the Hunchback unit, largely because I had a relationship with Kirk and Gary and I enjoyed working with them. And the studio was uh, kind enough to allow me to repair with them on this show. Because they had directed Beauty and the Beast. And of course you produced yeah. Beauty and the Beast. And we talked about that last week. So listeners, if you're just joining us this time, go back and to our archive and listen to Don from last week. Please. So, <laughs> so as, as, as Hunchback is developing, um, you know, with all of these animated films, they, you put the boards up, you put your reels up and you're tearing stuff down. What were some of the major issues that you guys encountered early on that you had to solve? Well, let's just look at the story. First of all, you have Victor Hugo, who uh, the mythology says he wrote this entire book out of one bottle of ink um, after seeing the word fate carved into the stone high in the bell towers of Notre Dame. That's pretty poetic. Um, So you have that legacy kind of to live up to. There were, I'm just going to say, a dozen Hunchback of Notre Dame movies. Um, Charles Lawton, um, Mm. you know, some amazing Hollywood versions, very um, brilliantly done. Uh, Lon Chaney. Yeah, um, I was just going to say Lon Chaney was in an early version. Brilliant. Brilliant acting, uh, much less the makeup and the costumes and that kind of thing. So you have that legacy to to look at and be uh, respectful of. And um, so I think those are the first things we looked at. And then, you know, the word hunchback is a really unpleasant word in, um, you know, maybe it wasn't when the book was written. Um, and, and, and actually in French, uh, Le Basseau du Notre Dame um, sounds a lot better than the hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, so, so that early kind of, uh, exploration was very visual and then very narrative. The visual exploration was fun because our art directors and our art team could look at medieval Paris. Our, our field trip was brilliant. We went to the uh, Musée Cluny, I think it's called, in uh, the Museum of, of uh, the Middle Ages in Paris, mm-hmm. which is unbelievable. Uh, you know, there's around every corner, there's thousand-year-old artifacts. Um, we went to Victor Hugo's house. Um, we went to the catacombs. We studied as much as we could about the Roma people. Um, we went, of course, finally and beautifully to Notre Dame uh, Cathedral which at the time was uh, not burned and had been intact. And we climbed the stairways high, high up into the bell towers. And uh, there's nothing like that kind of research where you're standing there in front of these multi-thousand pound bells uh, strapped to a beam high in a tower. Um, And God forbid they would ring, you would lose your hearing for sure. Uh, And they are majestic and fascinating and ancient and uh, all the things you would hope for. So that experience, I think, for all of us as artists and uh, filmmakers was amazing. Um, Then you start to piece the story together based loosely on... um, you know, the Victor Hugo, uh, novel and, uh, and start to try it on, you know, it's like trying on hats. It's like, is this a comedy? Is this funny? Is this in, is this all in French? Is this a musical? You know, so sure. you don't know. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
a couple of our earliest collaborators were Stephen Schwartz and uh, Alan Menken. And I'm going to say uh, right up front here that I think this is uh, Alan and Stephen's masterwork. They have both had many masterworks. I mean, you can't deny Wicked for Stephen or Little Mermaid or Beauty for Alan. But together, they did something really special musically with this. I mean, what other animated film uh, features these massive choirs and pipe organs and chanting in Latin and all the things that go along with this story that you want to hear with the story? And that always presented us with a balancing act because after the uh, choirs chanting the Kyrie from the Latin mass, then do you want to go to wise crack and gargoyles? You know, and so we were always constantly trying to walk a razor's edge of tone. Um, and that was hard. That was a real, real challenge was keeping the tone right. And some people would say, well, you guys, you made it too funny. And it really should have been dark and serious the whole way through. Uh, and, and I encourage you when you make your version of Hunchback to do exactly that. Uh, <laughs> but we want to make it for a family audience. Sure. We want to make it um, for the Disney audience. And that's uh, what we did. How, how important was it to get a G rating? On the film, you know, I think it was very important. Although by that time in the history of Disney and Hollywood, a PG rating would have been, um, you know, was fine. Yeah. Lion King got a G rating, but that was through um, some sleight of hand, I think, because there are some very violent things in Lion King. Sure, sure. Um, but I, I think with with Hunchback, uh, I don't even know. It got a PG rating, I think, in the end, uh, and that was appropriate. You know, that movie has a lot of uh, intense things that require a little uh, parental guidance. Yeah, yeah. And the design of the characters, um, I mean, just the overall design of the film is beautiful. When you get to Quasimodo, um, I'm just curious, like, what was what was going on behind the scenes with the design of that character? And were there concerns of portraying somebody with disabilities? Well, you couldn't uh, not do it. It's in the title of the film. So you really sure. had to uh, deliver that. And it's in the, not just the title, but it's in the story. The character uh, is ridiculed for being misshapen. So when you sign up to do a movie that's uh, titled Hunchback of Notre Dame, you need to deliver that. And it also needs to be an appealing character, which had been done. If you look at the Charles Lawton version, he is incredibly misshapen and and difficult to look at, but incredibly appealing in his own uh, empathetic kind of way. And that was the challenge. And so, you know, many, many artists took a crack at it. James, Gene Gilmore, uh, Rick Mackey, uh, James Baxter, the animator, brilliant, brilliant lead animator, finally cracked it and came up with a design that was appealing, not too Disney, not too dark, and a character that was animated but could sing, uh, but could climb the bell tower, but could fall in love with the girl. And, you know, it really uh, had quite a long shopping list of requirements for that character. James Baxter being who he is, um, really delivered, though, I think. And, and uh, the voice for Quasimodo, how many, how many actors did you go through? Uh, you know, and how, did, how did you guys settle on Tom Holtz? You know, there weren't as many actors as maybe we we heard for the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. Um, so we went through quite a few, uh, you know, at various times. I think Tom Hulse, we had known from, uh, of course, Amadeus, uh, mm -hmm. his starring turn as Mozart and Amadeus, but also as um, a theater performer and had done a lot of theater in Seattle and in San Francisco, uh, a musical theater performer. And 
and also funny and also charming. And so when he came on board, he gave Quasimodo all those colors we were looking for. He wasn't just a, uh, you know, a monster. Uh, if anything, he was uh, more, not unlike Beauty and the Beast, more human on the uh, inside and, and more monster on the outside and had to express that humanity as the movie went on. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tom Hulse was uh, one-stop shopping for all of those things. And you feel so lucky when you come across someone like that who not only is right for the role, but really loves it and wants to do it in a certain way and is willing to work on all the musical demands that uh, Alan and Stephen had for this film because it is one heck of a musical and we can't forget that he also played Larry Pinto Kruger in Animal House. I just One of my it, favorite movies. I just and, thought um, I'd point that out. Possibly <laughs> the principal reason we cast him as Quasimodo was his starring turn in Animal House. Uh, a prerequisite. Uh, when, yeah, many, many of our actors are in Animal House. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, speaking of, of casting, uh, Esmeralda, uh, Demi Moore, how did that come about? Wow. Uh, it, well, being Disney, you're fortunate that every once in a while you come across frequently, actually, actors and actresses that want to do a Disney film uh, for the fun of it, for the uh, and for their children to see. Demi Moore had uh, young children at the time. She, she was appearing in movies that her children couldn't see. Right. And that's often the right. case, you know. So, in fact, we one of the recording sessions, we had to go catch up with her and she was down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, um, uh, rehearsing and shooting striptease. Um, and so we, you know, right. <laughs> once again, the country cousins come to town yeah. and Kirk Wise and I flew into Fort Lauderdale um, and she was late and then she was going to be later. And then eventually we had to stay overnight and all those things are fine. You expect that when someone's shooting a movie. Um but she was really there for us. You know, she really understood what she was doing and, um, and, and is a really unique voice. She has that kind of uh, husky kind of interesting voice, which yeah. was a wonderful thing for, uh, you know, for our animators to dig into. Yeah. She really has a nice texture to her voice. It, it, it's just different, you know, uh, and, and it makes her, it makes her feel more independent, you know, a stronger, independent uh, yes. female lead, you know? Yeah, and I think that was the idea behind it is to try to get that kind of um, oh, strength. I mean, we had already begun to see that in characters like Belle and uh, and Jasmine and Pocahontas. And sure. you know, th- those characters were coming. Um, so great to be able to have Debbie Moore. She, she wasn't a singer, so... Um, uh, a, a Broadway um, chanteuse, I will call her, Heidi Mullenauer, who is a really good friend and a brilliant singer, uh, cabaret singer, came in and and sounds exactly like Demi Moore. So yeah. uh, many people just thought Demi sung the role, but... Uh, you couldn't tell the difference. No. You, you really could, couldn't. You, yeah, you really couldn't tell the difference. And, and that's not uncommon. You you get a, you know, big name actor who doesn't quite have the singing voice. So you bring somebody in that does the songs for them. I mean, that's been done yeah. time and time again. Really is true. Uh, they actually only recently when Howard Ashman was at the studio, did they start trying to find sing, um, actors who could sing. And so there was no need to split the roles up anymore for several years, um, unless the actress or actor really couldn't sing. Well, in, in the case of this movie, Tom Hulse was a great singer. Kevin Klein, Paul Kandel, who played Clopin. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. These are all like 
uh, top uh, Broadway stars who yeah, were classically to, trained theater actors, uh, yeah. theater actors and singers. You had somebody like Tony Jay who played the voice of Frollo, uh, probably the most evil sounding man on the planet and, and probably the nicest man on the planet. <laughs> um, so that's always fun is to kind of come across those characters and, uh, and bring them to life in, in a way that we do or uh, always have tried to do at Disney Animation. And, and um, uh, the recording on on a lot of those actors was it all over the map, or was it just Demi down in uh, Fort Lauderdale, and most of the people were in Los Angeles, or were you doing New York no, and Los Angeles? You know, we we went everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we caught up with people like Heidi Mullenauer in um, in New York, along with many of the uh, the Broadway actors. Uh, occasionally, Kevin Klein. A lot of them in Los Angeles would come and go there. Uh, and then Demi was just very busy. She was the top of her career right then. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's why we were willing to really chase her wherever she was. And um, she gave us a great performance, whether, you know, no matter where we were. And, and David Ogden Stiers was uh, once again uh, w- with you guys. Uh, he, yeah. he, did, he did Cogsworth in uh, Beauty and the Beast. And yeah, he was kind of our lucky charm. And I don't know what, you know, we never sat around years ago and saying, hey, let's make Stiers our lucky charm. Um, <laughs> but his voice was so unique. And we we all kind of grew up with him uh, when he was in MASH as an yeah. actor. Um, so he plays the Archdeacon, which is a very straight role in this in this. Um, particular film and and for the the gargoyles which we really wanted to make quasimodo's conscience you know it's almost like if we were there as an audience the gargoyles wouldn't be moving around it would just be kind of the the dreams and thoughts of quasimodo uh so charles kimbrough uh and um Oh, the great Jason Alexander and and Mary Wicks, uh, the beloved Mary Wicks. Yeah, she, came just in passed, and did, she just passed away. You know, she she had passed away years ago during the oh, making oh, no. of this movie. Uh, yes. Jane Withers, actually. Yes, it was Jane Withers that just passed away this past week, I think. Yes, it was. absolutely yeah. so. And and yeah. um, both are Hollywood legends. And I got to and you know this, Dave, when you're working on these animated films, you never dream of uh doing these things with the kind of celebrities that we have, but to sit down with Mary Wicks or with Jane Withers, who both kind of uh, gave lines to um, Laverne, one of the uh, uh, gargoyles is to sit down with a, an encyclopedia of Hollywood stories. So you sit down with, with Mary Wicks and you say, Mary Wicks, uh, tell me about uh, Chuck Heston. Mary Wicks, tell me about uh, what it was like to do a musical with, and she did Mary Poppins. The first Mary Poppins on Broadway was, Mary Wicks, yeah. um, you know, so those kinds of stories were always so precious. And I just, uh, it, it, we may not have known it at the time, but to have the Mary Wicks of the world and, and Kevin Klein and Jane Withers and all those people is, uh, is a thrill for us cartoon boys. Yeah, no, without question. I mean, it, it, it's really amazing when you see uh, the the credits on uh, on some of these people, and, and you know, especially when you're talking a Mary Wicks or or Jane Withers. Uh, you know, it's uh, they they really are uh, you know sort of the history of Hollywood. You know, because yeah, they, they started their careers in the '30s. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if Mary Wicks, if you remember, was uh, like you go way back, she was on the Jimmy Stewart show, and uh, you know the. Lucy show and the Phyllis Diller show. She was like a TV regular. Uh, and then most recently she was in sister act. She was yeah. one of the nuns with Whoopi Goldberg and sister act. Yeah. So talk about a career. Yeah. Uh, and of course, all these guys and girls in the cast are that way. 
when so when once uh, once you guys had cast all these folks and done all your dialogue recording i mean obviously the story was developing uh did you ever uh, on the film have that moment where it, like production ground to a halt like it happens on a lot of films <laughs> and, and and you have hey. to tear some sequences out or re rework them uh, if it did, I've blocked it out through years of therapy. Uh, <laughs> but I, no, I don't think so. Not on this one, not in a catas- cataclysmic way where it was yeah. stopped and where the schedule was stopped, as happened on many movies before this. By this time, there was a rhythm to feature animation. Uh, the executives like Peter Schneider, uh, even Michael Eisner, had been at the studio working with animation for 10 years or more. Um, so there was an expectation that people weren't. Uh, searching for how to make an animated film. They weren't searching for how to make a musical. We were just searching for how to make a good animated film. Mm. Um, So I can't say enough about Kirk and Gary, the directors. They are brilliant storytellers and have amazing taste, as you can tell just by looking at the movie. Um, And then going back to uh, Alan Menken, uh, uh, oh man, those guys, when 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 a, a song came in from them, it was thrilling and challenging. Um, a song like Heaven's Light uh, is a beautiful expression of Quasimodo's feeling. And then the counterpoint and the continuation of that song is Hellfire, mm. where Frollo sings about his uh, uh, unspoken passion for Esmeralda, mm-hmm. and he has to keep that suppressed. Um, and so I think our first our first uh, thought when it came in is this will never make it in the movie. Um, <laughs> but, uh, thankfully, it's uh, pretty intense. it's pretty intense, but there's plenty of intensity. We were always encouraged by the Walt Disney films. We are not Walt Disney, but if you look at Bambi, if you look at Dumbo, if you look at those early films of Walt Disney, some night on bald mountain in Fantasia, mm is as intense as Hellfire is and has imagery that is as intense as Hellfire is. So we were always encouraged by that. Now that doesn't give you license to say, Hey, Walt did it. We can do it because once again, we are not Walt Disney, but it gives you some courage to at least explore those possibilities. Uh, And that's again, where the animator, uh, Kathy Zelensky, who, who I listened to her podcast on your show the other day, and she is a hoot. There is no more brilliant unsung hero of animation, uh, than Kathy Zelensky, who animated Frollo in this movie. Um, and also worked on the Simpsons. She, and she, it's digs, also, the, she digs the villains. She loves she is, the evil oh, characters. <laughs> None better. And she dug into Frollo like a delicious dessert. And then pair with that, somebody like Chris Jenkins and, and Dave, you and your colleagues in the visual effects department who could animate, you know, this fireplace scene and all these things going on with Frollo and all the effects yeah. throughout the movie, with Paris burning and everything else. Uh, the effects guys really got to shine during this movie as well and and just just for uh our audience uh i actually have a an additional supervising effects credit uh because i was already working on fantasia 2000 uh during uh hunchback and uh at some point during the crunch period uh we took we, we took some work on within our effects department on fantasia to help help to get the the picture finished yeah, I was so lucky to get you on because you could uh, turn out a lot of great footage. It wasn't just a lot of footage. It was a lot of great footage. And so Thank you. we were always happy to have uh, 
kind of the powerhouse of uh, Dave Bossard stepping into our movies. Well, it, was, it was always fun. Uh, I always just enjoyed working on all the pictures, whatever. When somebody walked in the office and said, hey, can you help out on this? I, I was always, yeah, sure, let's do it. You know, it was it always, was a lot always of fun. amusing to me because we would we'd be working on Lion King and then you'd come in and go, hey, I'm doing a couple of scenes on Nightmare Before Christmas. And then we'd be working on Hunchback <laughs> and you'd come in and say, hey, I'm doing a couple of sequences of Fantasia. You know, so <laughs> I think the breadth of what you've done is, uh, you know, makes it a pretty interesting career. Uh, it's been pretty crazy. But getting back to Hunchback, um, yep. you know, uh, I, I, I and I agree with you. I think at that point, you know, towards the mid to end of the 90s, there was that kind of rhythm that was going on at the studio. You yeah. know, there there weren't, you know, there weren't pe- like new production people who were like the blood was draining out of their heads and they were like white as <laughs> sheets. Like, oh, my gosh, we're never going to fail. You know, uh, there were people that came on as their first project. You know, they've yeah. never done animation before and they were like, we're never going to get this footage done. <laughs> you know, like I, I think we were beyond that point. Uh, and, and there was uh, there was that, you know, you always had the crunch periods to hit your deadline, but everybody was in that rhythm of getting the footage done. You know, yeah, it's a pretty mature stu- uh, uh, studio. And you can. um there's a friend of ours named Steve Hickner, who you know well, yeah, Steve, who yeah. always compares animation to baseball. And it really <laughs> is because you can have a farm club that feeds your talent. And then once you get your team together, it takes, you know, five or six or seven seasons before you can start to have winning seasons. And then maybe 10 years before you can start to have a, you know, world series kind of capable crew. Uh, and then with that, usually doesn't last. And that tends to be the case. It certainly was for us uh, in feature animation, although now Disney animation's back in a huge way with their movies and um, Pixar never seems to go away. Uh, You know, thankfully for us as the audience, but um, the experience level back then uh, was starting to be at its prime. So you had not only great artists, but great managers and you brought in a great group of artists in Europe. Um, and, and that's mainly in Paris. I mean, the, uh, Paul and Gaetan Brizzi, um, yes, yes. Uh, were really key story people and uh, sequence directors on this film. And uh, if you don't know them, Google them, Paul and Gaetan Brizzi, they are some of the most brilliant artists I've ever worked with. And I, I think I, anyone I, would I say absolutely, the same. absolutely loved working with them because they, they directed the Firebird sequence in Fantasia 2000. Uh, which and, is breathtaking. And it, and it was just an, it was a joy to work with those guys. It really was. I, I just had so much fun with them and, um, and, and they did some such beautiful work uh, on the opening. I think it was, wasn't it the opening sequence of Hunchback? Well, the, it, it was that whole first five minutes or so, the Bells of Notre Dame uh, song, they illustrated. And in classic um, musical style, so much story gets across in that. You start with the Clopin as a puppet and, and uh, telling his story as a puppeteer. And you introduce Quasimodo's mother and, and her little baby and the archdeacon saving the baby and Frollo coming in and wanting to throw the baby down a well. And that's all in the opening song. You know, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It but, really um, sets it up though. You know, it does. Paul Gaetan, uh, pulled that together and the Paris unit animated that. And uh, Paul Gaetan also um, storyboarded the um, Hellfire sequence and and many others. And so not only them, but their, their colleagues in Paris by this time were a really mature, interesting group of artists. And for us American boys and girls, it was really good to have them on the film because 
uh, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, the French are, you know, uh, berets and baguettes and striped shirts. And there's, I, you know, I hate to break this to you, but there's so much more to the French than that. Um, and so to have that, that crew on the show and to have the opportunity to go over there and work with those artists in Paris. Oh my God. I, I can't tell you the value that they brought to, um, to the show. I mean, and, and other shows too. I mean, so much so that Glenn Keane ended up moving over there for Tarzan and yeah. many, many movies were done over there and, and uh, fortunate for all of us. Yeah. And, and, and really uh, I think having the French artists involved in a piece of French literature uh, yes. just, just added, uh, added provenance and credibility to, to what was being done. Don't you think? Well, it did because one of the, um, concerns we always had was boy, the French are going to hate us. And, uh, we thought, you know, we're in, we're in deep trouble because this is a classic piece of literature. And if they, um, <laughs> if they don't respond to it correctly, it not only reflects on us as filmmakers, but on Disney, you know, and, and that's not something that any of us wanted. The irony of it all, and I'm taking a brief pause right now because my battery on my headset is dying. Please hold. A few minutes later. So we were really concerned about the French all the time. Uh, two groups, actually, the French and the um, handicapped community. And in the end, they were the two groups that really embraced the film and really came after us and said, you know, you've handled this with respect. The uh, Disneyland Paris is, is full of Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, attractions and entertainment. Um, and we've had so many people from various parts of, uh, of the world just really express their gratefulness for taking on a lead character, a protagonist who was different from the rest of us. And, and that made us, uh, humbled and, and happy that, that, that we could certainly do that. Well, I, I, and it was, it was handled very respectfully, uh, which I think anybody who watches the film would, would, would certainly appreciate and say, wow. You know, there was humanity to the character. Yeah. And it's, boy, there's such wonderful animation in that. And by that, I mean um, animation where you really believe the characters and you are uh, convinced that they're flesh and blood characters with feelings. And, it, you know, and that's the kind of animation that um, Disney does best. And I, and I think at its best, there's some of that great, great character animation in this movie, thanks to the Kathy Zelenskys and the, mm -hmm. um, you know, the James Baxters and the Dave Pruxmas and so many other people. Sure. And, and you know, um, uh, years later, I worked on a, uh, a, a project. Uh, it was called Paris Dreams. It was a projection show yes. for the Paris Disneyland. Uh -huh. uh, and the song out there was a centerpiece and we actually reanimated Quasi singing that song in French as he climbed the Paris castle, uh, wonderful. the Disneyland castle. And it was all done with projections and it was just, I mean, really spectacular. You know, one of the most touching things I've ever seen is the... Um, online during the COVID crisis, a group of singers from London, I believe, uh, sang out there almost as an expression of, won't it be great to get out there someday? Yeah. It's the most emotional, wonderful kind of Zoom combined uh, thing. Wow. If you get a chance to look it up. Um, I, I felt so strongly about it. I wrote them and thanked them for doing it because it was this beautiful chorus of people uh, singing what is the Broadway version of it. And that's the other thing that's happened in 
fortunately with Hunchback, the Broadway uh, show of Hunchback of Notre Dame is absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, and and, uh, and that's the beauty of those animated films uh, is that they they filter out into other mediums. So yeah. it's you know Broadway shows and albums and books and just you know all kinds of stuff, uh, which is really great. I know Al John had a question about. Uh, go go ahead, Al John. You, you yeah, please. So so there there were some things to I guess uh, internet. Uh, Spect- uh, well, I guess speculation about uh, the different actors that you had auditioned for the role. And one of the things that had been put out there was um, Mandy Patinkin. Care to talk about a little bit about this? Or <laughs> <laughs> I was not there, but Mandy Patinkin, who I admire, uh, yes. is an amazing man. Going back to his Broadway um, performances in Sunday in the Park with George and his television yes. shows and things, he came into um, audition. I wasn't there, but Kirk and Gary were, and it was apparently a um, how do you say this problematic audition uh, where he had prepared some material to. Um, audition with and uh anyway it didn't end well let's just put it that way and it's probably a better question for them but uh it was an awkward audition and and you have to remember that when actors come in to audition if we're insecure they're insecure it's a really uncomfortable situation and and many times actors are sitting in a hallway for an hour before they can even get in and see you and that wasn't the case with mandy but with a lot of the actors that come in uh, so you're dealing with actors to begin with who are a special breed of people who have to bear their souls in front of complete strangers. So it's not surprising that every once in a while uh, a fist fight breaks out and, and which did not happen by the way, with anything, but uh, it could have, but um, it, you know, attentions uh, cut loose once in a while. Most of the time it's cordial because people want to be uh, give their best performance, but you know, to watch these actors come in and be vu- that vulnerable in front of you, reading your scene and trying to, create a character uh i i use the word humbling a lot because it is you are watching somebody you know bleed and trying to create something for you that makes your film special and that's a wonderful feeling and sometimes it's a comedian sometimes like jason alexander who was you know in seinfeld and and was also unbeknownst to us much of the time a huge broadway star and great singer um, loved doing this part and was such a friend by the end of the movie. So uh, yeah, auditions sometimes are bumpy. Sure. Well, another part of that, and you alluded to this earlier was the tap dance or walking that, that fine line between what is acceptable in a PG or G setting versus something that's a little bit more darker tone, which this film definitely has, uh, you know, because Frollo is probably the most evil. My wife and I have watched this film over and over again, and we love the visuals, Dave. Of course, all the the, the special effects and the panning from the cityscapes and all that. But uh, when you talk about the violence and toning that down, how does it? How how do you? How often do you go back to what you've created or the the animators have done and say, we need to scale this back, especially you know, the, um, um, the end scenes, uh, with Quasimodo and, and the violence. Yeah. The, the, there's all kinds of that stuff. I mean, there's like at least three different uh, scenes I could pull out, you know, and, and how many at times least, do you have to yeah. do that reiteration of, of just 
trying to tone it down and not be too over the top? Well, you, you are aware of your audience all the time. And going into the film, you don't want to edit yourself too soon. You don't want to say, hey, let's really pull our punches. And, you know, before you even get into it, um, I think better to go a little too far and correct back uh, in it. It's, you know, whether it's like cooking or painting or whatever, you want to be able to put all of your efforts up there and then you can look at it dispassionately and say oh you know we went a little too far here or this part of the movie is not very clear or this song doesn't work or whatever it is so you try to get all the we used to say all the clay on the armature you know if you're a sculptor you know you build a little wire and then you put clay on that wire and you slowly build not with details but with these masses of information and then eventually you you carve away some things and start to make it look like the movie um, we don't make a movie for ratings. We don't make a movie for consumer products. We were lucky to have consumer products on our films. We were lucky to have a studio that never walked in the room and said, Hey, we need more toys. Um, so, and the ratings board always would work with us, not in a covert way, but we would always, they might come back and say, it's a great movie, but these sections come very close to the line for a PG 13 or something. And we would look at those. We would definitely look at those and either scale back. Sometimes it was sound that got scaled back. Sometimes it was an image. Um, and so it was, it was adjustments all along the way, not often big adjustments, but adjustments nonetheless to make it appropriate and make the perception of the movie work. Um, and as you're making the movie, a lot of times the most intense parts you'll try to do in a more poetic way. You'll try to do uh, with Frollo singing to a fireplace. You'll try to do uh, a scar getting killed by hyenas with a shadow on the wall. Um, you know, so there's, there's things you do to create impressions. But the problem with that is often the theater of the mind is stronger than what you might actually show. So your imagination of a shadow on a wall or what's going on in that darn fireplace is, uh, is much stronger than what you could ever show on screen. So that's the line you have to walk all the time. And it's, uh, it's a challenge. But but that's indicative of filmmaking because filmmaking is just a big team effort. There are a lot of facets to the team and uh, a lot of people have to weigh in on these things. Uh, yeah. and, and, and so you do have to look at them and put fresh eye, have people come in and put fresh eyes on things and point stuff out. And I mean, that's just part of the whole process, isn't it? Yeah, and there's no question that that Touchback of Notre Dame it, uh, really pushes up against some of those um, uh, boundaries and barriers in many different ways. Uh, but the thing you always hope is that there's a counterpoint to that. So as it gets, uh, as Frollo gets meaner. Uh, in his depiction that Quasimodo or Esmeralda or some of the other characters um, give you the other side of life. Because I think when these movies work, it's because they present you with a spectrum of human emotions. So if Quasimodo could sing Heaven's Light about his little life he's carved out up in the bell tower, and that brings you a counterpoint to Frollo's song, those kinds of um, balances are really crucial. If the whole movie was dark, that would be one thing. And and uh, and there are people that don't like the comedy in Hunchback of Notre Dame in, in our particular version. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really support it because I, I really feel like that's what leavens the movie enough to allow you to have moments with Frollo or with uh, Quasimodo that are quite dark because then you can... Um, leaven that a little bit with some of the comedy from other characters. Was there any song uh, written that never made it into the film? I, I couldn't re- quite recall uh, uh, I was thinking know, about it. There, there were two songs that kept going back and forth. Someday 
and um, God Help the Outcasts, both sung by Heidi Mullenauer, the Esmeralda character. Mm-hmm. Um, Someday originally was written for the movie and for her walking through the cathedral. Uh, it's a very poetic uh, song about someday. You know, it's like, let there be peace on earth. Um, and then deep in the in the making of the movie, um, there was another song called uh, God Help the Outcast that was cut out pretty early. And I heard it and went to Kirk and Gary and said, you know, this song is so perfect for the movie and it's so intimate. Whereas Merelda sings about God help the outcasts humble from birth. Um, and it's really singing about Quasimodo without ever mentioning his name. Mm. So that was a much more personal connection to the hero of the story than the kind of overarching um, uh, macro version of someday. And I think in the end movie, and this is embarrassing because it's been 25 years, but um, God help the outcast is absolutely in the movie with Esmeralda walking through and singing some, seeing some of the parishioners um, pray out loud and, and ask for wealth and that kind of thing. And someday is in the uh, end credits of the film. So uh, we got our cake and eat it too, but uh, God help the outcast is really one of my favorite all time Disney songs. That's interesting. Um, you know, I, I I have to say, uh, or I have to ask you this question, was there any one moment during production that really jumps out to you? Like a funny, serious, crazy moment uh, in the midst of production that that's, you, you, you flash on occasionally? Yeah. yeah, there's a few. We all have those moments, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the most breathtaking moments was when we did get to go to Paris and we... Um, we worked hard, but we also played hard and, and we would go there and, uh, I would rent a, a boat for the crew and we would go up and down the Seine and be able to see Notre Dame at nighttime from the river. Um, and, uh, there was champagne involved. So, um, those kinds of moments, which I think any artist would enjoy also become really kind of romanticized. They're good bonding for the crew, but also, kind of created this image of this amazing uh, structure on the Seine and what it must have meant to have that there for all these centuries. Uh, visiting the museums was certainly that way. We did our choruses in London because London has such a great choral um, tradition. Community, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we needed help with the Latin. And so Stephen Schwartz uh, uh, and I were talking, he said, I need somebody to help me translate the Latin. And so I called up our friend, uh, Charles Solomon, who reads and speaks Latin, of course, uh, the wow. great, uh, film another, critic. Another and, uh, facet of Charles. I didn't know. Uh, amazingly <laughs> smart man. And he, um, helped us write a lot of the Latin content. A lot of it's from the mass, the Latin mass, but some of it's actually some of the chanting and things is more specific to the show in a very general way. And then Stephen could take the Latin lyrics like that and adapt them to the music. Uh, but we recorded in London, uh, a beautiful, um, at a church there actually. St. Martin's um, in the field? No, we actually uh, recorded at George Martin's studio. Oh, okay. Um, he, he, the famous Beatles producer, bought yeah. a church up in Hampstead. Um, and uh, it's called Air Lindhurst is the name of the studio. And uh, the church has such amazing acoustics. And now it's virtually where every film score you hear in London, uh, recorded in London, is recorded there. Uh, and then we took the tracks to a church um, in London to record the pipe organ. But the pipe organ was out of tune because, you know, th- what we know now as uh, conventional tuning, um, like an A that we would sing now or tune a violin to is A440, so 440 beats per second. 
That was not always the case forever. So when this pipe organ was built that we went to, we didn't know this, but it was built and A was not 440, A was some other weird number. So <laughs> we actually had to slow down the recording machine to be able to get the recording in tune with this pipe organ that had been built 150 years ago. Uh, but that's what you hear in the movie because we didn't uh, want a synthesized sample. We wanted sure. to get a true uh, echoey church pipe organ. Wow. So moments like that really stick out. Uh, you know, we would occasionally get, um, our French office was always worried about the movie and they would say oh you you can't you can't name these characters uh victor and hugo and uh, <laughs> uh we, we got one note early on that said uh the the crowd would never throw tomatoes at quasimodo because tomatoes uh were from south america and they never came into medieval europe during this time period uh and so sometimes you say you know you know folks it's a cartoon and nobody's going to walk out of the theater because a tomato gets thrown at Quasimodo. And, <laughs> and as God is my witness, no one has. Um, so sometimes that you, you that have to. That you know of. That you know of. And, uh, <laughs> you know, go ahead and text me if you'd like. But um, these movies are always made with a great deal of passion and, and a considerable amount of nerves. And uh, as you said, Dave, a lot of back and forth toing and froing to try to make sure the tone and the level and the quality and all those things you want to deliver to the audience are all there uh, and exceed expectations. Um, so it, it was a tough movie to make, not because of the schedule or the crew, because we had worked together before on Beauty and the Beast, but because of the content mm -hmm. and uh, because of our, you know, just trying to be careful with and respectful with the content. Yeah. I, I do want to convey one story because as you were talking about taking the crew on the boat down the sand and all of that, um, I, uh, it w I believe it was New Year's Day of 1988. <laughs> yes, uh, it was. Nancy, Nancy and I went to Paris because we were working on uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit in London, or I was, and Nancy was finishing Land Before Time in Dublin, and we went to Paris on uh, and New Year's Day, we walk into the cathedral at Notre Dame. And uh, we're, you know, there's a lot of people in there. And I'm kind of like scanning. I'm looking across at this magnificent interior of this cathedral. And then I see this head sticking above the crowd. And I go, that's Don Hahn. And I look <laughs> at Nancy, I go, that's Don Hahn over there. <laughs> and Don was there with Denise. We, we, we had no idea that each other was going to Paris for the holidays. Oh. Uh, and we're obviously Don was producing uh, who framed Roger Rabbit in London. And I was part of the effects crew there. That's so it was crazy. It was, that was a very funny moment. I thought, you know, yeah, cause you know, you know, and I think I said like, uh, Hey Dave, how you doing? Not quite realizing how absurd it was that we were in, the, in Paris <laughs> at the same time. Um, but it, it, you know, new year's, this will sound very, uh, you know, upper one percent, but New Year's in Paris is just lovely. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was. was, it, it, was uh, it was crazy. It was, <laughs> it was raining, and people are running through the streets yelling "Bonani," and you're everyone's embracing, and Dave and well, I are embracing, and it was wonderful. Well, yeah, you know, Nancy and I actually had dinner on. I think it was called the uh, the Baton Rouge. Uh, uh, on the Seine, it was a uh, it was a, a riverboat restaurant. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and literally we had Chateaubriand for two. Uh, oh, yeah. This was the life of animators in the nineties. It was insane. You know, we, well, by this know. time we had had successes with <laughs> Mermaid and Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. And so there was, uh, there were budgets and, oh. you know, as with any company and any business, uh, the money flows and the money goes away. Yes. It it, again. It's like the tides. Yeah. Uh, and flows. So at that flows. point, the tide had come in and we were drinking champagne on the Seine. There you go. There you go. Anyway, I I, I digressed for a moment there. But That's now, funny. Now, uh, I want to talk briefly about, if we could, uh, the movie premiered June 19th, 1996, and it premiered at the New Orleans Superdome. Uh, and can you, like, talk about how that all came about? Uh, I'm I, I really, I think the audience would love to know, how do these ideas, like, there's somebody sitting in a room going, I think we should take over the Superdome and do a premiere. Or <laughs> I think we should go into Central Park and premiere Pocahontas. You know, I mean, like, how, how do those things come about? Well, it's pretty much like that. Uh, the head of the studio at the time was a gentleman named Dick Cook. And Dick comes from distribution and marketing. And uh, and also on board were people like uh, Fred Tio, who designed all of our um, one sheets and marketing materials. And many, many other people who are just great publicists and thinkers. So all through this renaissance period, going back to Little Mermaid and before, we had this uh, equally gifted team in marketing and distribution that was helping to grow the business and grow our audience really is what it came down to. And uh, it's a very noisy world. It was back then and it's even noisier now. So to make an impression, you had to make some noise and, um, and Dick loved and was brilliant at doing event marketing. He was a showman. I, I mean, he was a he was real a showman, showman and still yeah. is. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he famously did the premiere of Pearl Harbor, the Jerry Bruckheimer movie on the deck of an aircraft character parked in Pearl Harbor. Um, and so he's the kind of guy that would fearlessly call up and ask for those things. Pocahontas premiering in Central Park. Well, going to uh, New Orleans was a treat, uh, you know, and the culture there. Uh, was very kind of sympathetic to the movie, kind of a French uh, subculture and, and musics and that kind of thing. And of course, the Superdome um, is this vast place. And and we hung four or five or six screens from the ceiling and uh, filled the place with, I believe, 60,000 people and did a stage show beforehand because the movie's not enough. You have to have a stage show beforehand and, and, and gather press from around the country. So Good Morning America and Regis and Kathy Lee at the time, anybody you could mention would come to the Superdome, be put up overnight, be able to see the show, be able to have access to all the stars and all the voices and, uh, you know, and really have a moment where they could go back then and say, hey, I had this great time down there and I saw this great movie. And then they, you can't control their reviews or what they say. Thankfully, they were uh, you know reasonable about the movie. But that's that's your opportunity. That's your opportunity to say, listen, we want you to see this movie. We're proud of it. We're proud of it enough to have uh, this event. And the event, by the way, started with a parade through New Orleans. And, <laughs> of course it did. Of course and, it did. And, <laughs> because why not? And and before that, started with steam cleaning of uh, downtown New Orleans because. Uh, there are there are parts of it that the city would like to clean up before our parade. And they did. The mayor of New Orleans, the people of New Orleans were welcomed us. We had horse-drawn carriages. We had marching bands that took us from our kind of opening ceremony into the Superdome. We had a day of festivities. There was food. It was, you know, it was just outrageously fun. Um, and, and that was an era when, you know, we were, we had done 
uh, Lion King at uh, Radio City Music Hall. Uh, we had done events for Hunchback of Notre Dame in New York at um, St. John the Divine. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing kind of press event there in a very hallowed, wonderful sanctuary. Um, so this gang at the studio was uh, led by Dick Cook and, and his uh, troop were brilliant at event marketing. And that's where uh, where that premiere came from. And, and that's it, it's so amazing because when you do something like that, you're you're really kind of like hitting you, you have to hit and run the uh, the press. You you yeah. have to hit them really big so that they go and blab about it everywhere throughout the you know through all their outlets in that opening week because yes. then then it's on to the next thing right I mean well and and yes at, you know, the movie business had changed so much that you really had to open you had a week maybe two that you could open that's even a shorter time now but it's not like you know when Mary Poppins or or um, then her came out it would run for a year and you could just go see that show forever uh not so in the um you know summer of the 90s so you really had to make some make a splash and and hope that the audience uh appreciated and in general the audience did and still critics were were honest some liked it some didn't that was the case with Lion King that was the case with every movie um but the noise created by the opening was was great and and we usually we do that opening a couple of weeks beforehand so that we could get the early reviews and then those early reviews would come out a week before the movie came out so everybody was familiar with the event everybody read the reviews and by that Friday night that the movie came out it was like an explosion. And, and, and the film, I mean, it, it was the fifth, I, and I'm, I, I had to look this up, but it was the fifth highest grossing film of 1996. It did $325.3 million, which in 1996 dollars is a lot. It was not a disappointment. No. It, I mean, what was funny though, is I think to be absolutely honest uh, with your listeners, I think after Lion King, we had to be very careful that every movie that didn't do, you know, five, six, seven hundred million dollars was not considered a bomb. I was in Argentina at the time, which also speaks to the amount of publicity that we would do worldwide. And I was just checking into the hotel in Argentina and Peter Schneider, our boss, called and he said, it's, it's going to open to just a hundred million. And I said, oh, boy, OK. And then we caught ourselves and said, hundred million. Like what filmmaker on the face of the planet would not like a movie <laughs> in, in 1996 to open to a hundred million dollars. And uh, so in retrospect, wow, I'm pretty proud about all that. Yeah. But I think, I think Lion King was an anomaly because it made so much money and was so huge that anything that came after it, if it didn't top it, it you know, and, and I, I distinctly, and you, you probably remember this too. I distinctly remember studio executives saying, Oh, you know what? It, it's like, you know, it's okay if we don't do the Lion King numbers. But it really yeah, was yeah. never okay. You know, they, they said that, but we, there was always this undercurrent, like it really wasn't okay. And before Lion King, I remember sitting down when we started, uh, when we started Lion King and Jeffrey Katzenberg saying, you know, if we don't do mermaid numbers, that's okay. Uh, Beauty and the Beast numbers, if this is a, an experiment, if it's kind of a, a reach out in a new direction, um, you know, there's no humans in this movie. It's Elton John. We're just not sure. And that's okay. We have to step out in new directions. Uh, and, you know, it turned out okay. It did. It turned out very, very well. Um, I was just looking at an article the other day about the uh, French Quarter um, 
parade down in uh, New Orleans. And, and, and the thing that, that the kinds of stories that would come out of those things would not be reviews of the movies as much as reviews of the premiere. So, you know, people would say, wow, it was a 45 minute, you know, a glitzy show with uh, scenes from Aladdin, scenes from everything else. And, uh, and the parade beforehand was spectacular with 1200 float, float riders and marching bands and all that stuff. So, and, and Donald Duck was there. So you got this splashy review about the Hunchback premiere uh, that didn't have to talk about the movie yet. And then you could follow it up with the, with the, uh, with the review of the movie. So the, the philosophy and the uh, strategy behind it is, is brilliant. Yeah. And, and they, they brought in uh, performers and floats from Disney world. Absolutely. To, so to, to do this big parade now yeah. on something like that, do they just go to Disney world and the person in charge of parades and say, Hey, we need you to put a parade together for new Orleans. I mean, yeah. is that basically how they, it works for, yeah, they went to Disneyland and Walt Disney world and said, we need a half, we need a dozen floats please. And they'll look at, you know, they'll look in the warehouse and say, okay, we have a, we have like a music parade or we have the electric light parade. We can loan you some of that. Uh, and they will truck it up there and, um, you know, and literally do that. It didn't for Hercules. I think they did the electric light parade in New York, didn't they? One uh, of the big shows they did, man, but the, yeah. the ability to borrow that stuff from a large media company like Disney is spectacular. Yeah. So from Florida to New Orleans is not a big trip. You can uh, bring in floats. You can bring in writers and dancers and Mickey and Minnie and Donald and Goofy and Snow White. And they can all be there celebrating the opening of this, this next film. And that's part of it too, to say in the legacy of Walt Disney, this is the 34th uh, film sure. or whatever. Yeah. So you have this kind of continuum of uh, of animation that lasts to this day. You know, I, I don't know what number it is, but the Frozen's and Wreck-It Ralphs of the world are are still considered part of that uh, long string of Disney movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it is interesting because when they, I'm sure when they were looking at what floats they could lend to this parade, it's not that difficult to to sort of you know repurpose a float a float and dress it up a little bit, uh, to, almost to theme it to your movie, right? Well, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a Mardi Gras theme, yeah. Uh, which you know, some people criticize for uh, maybe not, maybe it wasn't truth in advertising uh, because the movie itself wasn't exactly Mardi Gras, but um, it, it presented a face on the movie that was about musicals and about celebration, and certainly that part of it was reflective of the movie. So, uh, yeah, to be able to call Disney World, who has a large entertainment troop and just to say we need singers and dancers we need uh jody benson to come up here the voice of uh, of ariel we need uh, Paige o'hara the voice of of bell to come up here and sing for and they did that's and, amazing um, yeah it's it, you know it, it's unfortunate because now you don't see those big premieres that often occasionally you do yeah um but it was really an art back then and, and done so brilliantly yeah. And, and not just at Disney. I mean, all the all the studios were doing these massive premieres for their tentpole movies. Yeah. Uh, so everybody yeah. was trying to outdo one another. You know? Yeah, exactly. And it um, it was fun. It was a lot of good memories and a lot of, uh, you know, clever. It, it's you know, I, I, I tried to hit on a little bit in Waking Sleeping Beauty, uh, the documentary about that era because it's not just a story about the artistic achievement, which is primary in the story, but it's also a story about the executives and the uh, marketeers who supported all that. And um, it's very hard to tell that story of the Renaissance, even though we didn't call it a Renaissance when we were there uh, without acknowledging those people, because it was uh, just a, 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 one of those perfect storms where all those elements came together and then they all blew away. 
like yeah. baseball. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the come together. You, Let's you go back to world, Steve Hickner. Back <laughs> to Steve Hickner in baseball. You, you win the World Series, and I'll be darned if you can never get that team back together again. And boy, that's the movie business. Yeah. Wow. Um, when you when you look back, I mean, now it's 25 years since that movie opened. Yeah. Uh, and you look back. I mean, what, what what's the legacy of that film? What's the what are your feelings about that film? Looking back 25 years later well i'm wearing many of the same clothes from that era um but aside <laughs> from that the legacy legacy is um you know very touching i think because people look at the film and have a very emotional reaction to it uh there's a, a fan following now that is huge and loyal and quite often when people um talk when, when i get to talk to people they'll say it's one of their favorite disney films ever and and um, I, I never expect that from anybody about any film because we all have different tastes, but um, it speaks to a certain part of the audience. I think that really uh, feels themselves. And we all do like the outcast and that's what it is. It's a metaphor for that time when we all feel like we weren't invited to the prom and we all are the outcasts. So we all have an overbearing uh, guy like Frollo in our lives somewhere, whether it's a boss or a parent or something like that. There's a lot of metaphor and a lot of, um, you know, the, the, the Roma, the gypsies, as we call them in the film, uh, is, is, you know, very Black Lives Matter kind of today. So a lot of people feel there's a um, relevance to the movie, even today, 25 years later. And that's, uh, that's amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah, you know, I think that's it's probably true of all of the films that we worked on during that period. It seems like the fan base grows over time because yeah. there's more people discovering the film. They weren't around, you know, they weren't born, you know, when the movie was first released, but then they discover it years later and it, and it touches them in some way and, and it resonates with them. And it's not just Hunchback. It's all of those films because they, each one of those movies seems to have built up a big loyal following uh, because yeah. the film resonates with them. Yeah. And you'll find people that'll come up and say, you know, I, I lost a parent and I went and saw Lion King and I was really um, helped by seeing that story. Well, that's not something we consciously thought of when we're making the movie, but these movies are based on mythology and they're ancient myths and those kinds of ancient mythology stories exist in our culture for a reason. And that's because they are a coping mechanism and they help us deal with the complex lives that we lead. And so when somebody comes up and says, I really appreciated the story you told uh, in Hunchback and the characters you represented, it's because it helps them deal with something in their lives on some small level that helps them cope with uh, the you know, really complicated world we live in. And that's what I love about storytelling. You know, I feel mm -hmm. like I'm the luckiest guy in the world to be able to tell stories because on some level uh, you're helping people see other sides of life. And if I can do that, boy, I, I will be doing that for the rest of my life. Very true. And, uh, and it's interesting, uh, as you, you were just speaking, I, I flashed on a letter that came to the studio and you remember this on Lion King or after Lion King opened about a woman whose uh, husband passed away and they had a young son and how that movie had really helped the son, you know, understand the death of, uh, of his father. 
Uh, yeah, and, I mean, I, I have been in tears uh, many a time, just in general in my life, but also about Lion King, right. when, you're, when you're thinking about people who are affected by it. And again, when you're making a movie, you're struggling with storytelling, but you're also working with ancient um, stories and archetypes and ways of uh, communicating to people what it's like to be human. So whether you're using lions or... Uh, archdeacons or fish uh it's they're human stories they're yeah. they're fables um as old as aesop and as old as greek theater and those fables have tremendous power uh more so today than ever you know we think sometimes we have a lot of media and a lot of access to media which is great but those profound stories about our humanity are um what we turn to. And thankfully we get them everywhere. I, I get them on Ted Lasso. I get them on a YouTube channel. I get them on a podcast like this. And uh, the reason we all listen is because it helps us understand uh, what it's like to be uh, walking in the shoes of other people. Did you ever get a letter uh, or uh, something, uh, you know, a a communication that stood out on Hunchback after it was released? Did anybody ever? uh, Yeah. I mean, like uh, you got on Lion King. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of them came from Paris and from uh, France uh, and, and from the French office of people who were appreciative that they had an entree into Victor Hugo's work. Because let's face it, we don't read Victor Hugo every day. And unless you're making a movie about it, you probably never read Victor Hugo. So somebody who has a child who goes and sees Hunchback gets that curiosity about well, this is Disney's version. Let's go read the real thing, you know, the real Victor Hugo. Uh, and, and then, of course, the people from the community that maybe really is deaf or suffering from some sort of uh, physical uh, malady that they have to deal with every day. Uh, to do a character that actually is that on the screen in a way that's uh, respectful and encouraging is uh, something that people and many different people around the world when I would travel with the movie were very warm about. Mm. And, um, and again, I go back to that word humbling because it's not just me. It's a, it's a group of people from actors to musicians to Kirk and Gary and Alan Menken and all those people that make that magic happen. Absolutely. Uh, Al John, do you have any questions? Oh, I, I think we're good. I mean, you know, I, I think you nailed that whole, you know, Joseph Campbell hero's story, yeah. You know, structure. We all can relate to an aspect or, of some of these characters of, of these various films. And I think for Hunchback, um, you know, the fact that you have such an endearing character uh, like Quasimodo, um, I hearken this to my experience watching the elephant man for the first time. When I, when yeah. I saw the elephant man for the first time and I, I looked at a character that was, you know, and still to this day, uh, I, I I can empathize with so much. He had so much charm and so much heart. And then you just feel for the character. And I felt the same way um, and still feel the same way about Quasimodo and watching this film. And I'm glad that the ending is what it is and, and not necessarily the source material. You know, it's, it's, it's uplifting. Yeah, and, it's and different. It, if you're, if you want to go see the source material as, as the stage production happens, that is a very serious ending, a very um, dramatic, profound ending. And on stage, this story is spectacular with Alan's music and, and Steven's lyrics. And uh, it, it 
it it allows you to bring another more adult version of the story to a theater going audience that you maybe not uh, aren't going to send to a, a cinema audience with a dizzy crowd. So when this plays and it has for years around the world, most notably where it opened up in Germany, um, boy, I was in Berlin a couple of years ago and it was still playing there and people were packed to go in and see it because it just speaks to people around the world. And that's such a great feeling. Fantastic. Uh, I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't touch on this before we wrap up, but real quick, there's a couple of inside little jokes that are in uh, Hunchback. Uh, There's Belle uh, walking in the crowd. Yes, if you look down from the Towers of Notre Dame into this little square that's in front of Notre Dame, Belle is reading her book, Walking Through, yeah. And there's also, if I recall correctly, a satellite dish? Yes, it's very hard to see in the movie, but if you look in some of the books around the art of Hunchback of Notre Dame, again, in the downshot, beautiful, gorgeous artwork, Lisa Keen, Dave Getz, all those painters. Yeah. you know, it takes a long time to make these movies, and occasionally uh, one has artistic license to include uh, a few things. Uh, by the way, not obscene or inappropriate things. No, no. Occasionally, you'll see a satellite dish. And, uh, but, but you know, throughout animation history, there's always been these fun little inside jokes, you know, where, you know, you, uh, like in Aladdin, you have Ron and John, the directors, caricatured as two guys standing in a crowd. Uh, yeah. The average person who goes to see the movie isn't going to recognize them, but we're all chuckling because we know it's them. Uh, yeah. And and so these fun little things where you repurpose a little, you know, bell walking through the crowd or you put a little satellite dish, you know, uh, on a roof top uh and and it's it's really something you have to search for these are little easter eggs and and again to your point there's nothing obscene about these things but you know people put their names in and and there's there there's one layout by the way in rhapsody in, in the rhapsody in blue sequence um uh, in Fantasia 2000, where I think uh, Doug, the layout guy, uh, his name is is like like appears like 15 times within the layout. Yeah. These yes. little curly cues. You know, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, and well, so, it's good. Know, it's, it is kind of just a, sort of a wink and a nod kind of fun stuff, you know? It is. It is. We go through these movies with a fine tooth comb trying to make sure there's nothing weird in them, but uh, occasionally amusing things like Easter, Easter egg type things do break through. Yes. Well, Don, uh, thank you so much for coming back for a second show. And, it is a uh, pleasure. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be uh, asked back. Uh, so thank you so much. Well, we are going to have you back. I want the audience to know we're going to have you back next week. So you'll be what? camping out for another week in the green room. Uh, we will replenish the uh, the fruit platter for sure and yes. get some muffins in there for you. Uh, and uh, But next week, yeah. folks, we are going to be talking about Atlantis, the Lost Empire, because it is another um, uh, anniversary. Oh, wow. So It's yeah. just perfect timing because my headset just died. all right don so we will we're we're gonna see you next week wonderful to have wireless headsets (laughs) we're gonna see you next week um uh for the atlantis uh the atlantis episode i actually can lip read and i will see you next week too and and for god's sake if i'm going to go back to the greens green room can you please uh send uh, some fresh towels and a fresh fruit platter please i don't ask for much but uh i do need a shower it's been two weeks Okay, we're going to go in and hose you down. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure. Skull Rock Podcast.
your passport behind the scenes of Disney fantasy. Wowie, wowie, Dave. That's a lot of meat on the bone there. It, it really was. I, I mean, that that was incredible. And there was some really great behind-the-scenes stories. I mean, I, I love talking with Don about these things because he's such a great storyteller. And, you know, he remembers these nuanced things that happen behind the scenes. And I, it's just wonderful to be a fly on the wall and to sit here and listen to it. The recall's incredible because I... Don't remember what I had for lunch, but he can remember what happened 30 years ago on this film or 25 yeah, years ago. You, you know something, though, because the, because a lot of these films take two or three years to make, yeah. you know, they, they leave such an impression on you uh, that once you start talking about them with somebody, these memories flood back to you. Yeah, I can only imagine that, you know, when when your team wraps a, a film like this, a project, that the rap party is great. And then everyone shares stories about their experience working on the film because everyone's mm-hmm. kind of siloed in their own, they're, they're working on this character and, and the, these scenes and everybody's doing that. So as Don would say, you know, the, all this stuff is piecemeal together, right? It, it's a, it's a quilt mm-hmm. and everyone brings their own patchwork together to stitch this incredible film project together. You all get to finally talk about everything that happened during this film and it's great to capture that yeah it really is i I, i'm looking forward to next week uh when we have him back for uh the anniversary of atlantis the lost empire man it's 20 years it's crazy to think all this time has come by you know past 30 years for beauty 25 for hunchback and 20th for atlantis all wonderful films and i know that everyone's going to just go up go back out there after watching or hearing this podcast and just relive those films on disney plus it's it's amazing so anyway gang if you're a fan of disney pop culture and of course these never before behind the scenes stories that we promise you every single week which we deliver by the way feel free to subscribe to the show tell all your friends follow us on every podcast platform including uh listen to us streaming on source of radio at srsounds.com our partners there and you can also follow us on all the socials facebook twitter instagram and be sure to check out the Skull Rock Pod or SkullRockPodcast.com for the archive of wonderful interviews. And there's so many of Dave's compadres there, great filmmakers, uh, female animators, and, and musicians and things like that you need to go check out in the arca- archive. And uh, feel free to shoot us those emails. We love them. Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. Dave. Well, Al John, as always, peace and love to everybody out there. Uh, go out, have a great week. Uh, get vaccinated if you haven't. Mask up. Uh, we're going to get through this uh, pandemic, and uh, we're going to be back out in the world again. And we love having you here, and we hope you'll join us again next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney 
they can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.